Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the front lines of the field. Translating Aging is sponsored by BioAge, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. With us today is Dr. Ashley Zender, CEO and co-founder of FaunaBio, a San Francisco Bay Area-based company founded in 2018. FaunaBio has adopted a fascinating strategy for drug development, studying animal genomics to cure human diseases. Dr. Zender, thank you for joining us today. I thought maybe you could, you know, say a few words about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure. And thanks to both of you for inviting me to be on the podcast today. It's exciting to be able to chat with you guys. And I'm excited to talk a little bit about what we do at Fauna. So it's great. I am, as you mentioned, I'm a veterinarian. Uh, My background is in companion exotics. So I was clinically trained to treat birds, mammals, reptiles, all sorts of strange species. I ended up doing a cancer biology PhD at Stanford, focused on the intersection of animal and human health. So looking at cancer traits across different species, why some species get cancers, why some species don't, and understanding the molecular basis that drives all those cancers, which turns out to be the same across all these species. And so that really morphed into the work that we do at Fauna as I transitioned into a postdoc with Carlos Bustamante. Also at Stanford, I was fortunate enough to connect with who ended up being my two co-founders. So Linda Goodman is our CTO. She's a person who has a human genetics PhD. And we really had spent a lot of time trying to understand what drives human disease from a genetic level and really became quite frustrated with the difficulty of trying to figure out just by studying human genetics what are the genes that are driving disease? And turn to comparative genomics as a way to solve that problem. So she had done a postdoc with the 200 Mammals Project, being able to use evolutionary signals to improve our ability to identify disease-causing genes in people. And also our CSO, who was in the same postdoc lab as Katie Grayback, she also has a human genetics PhD. She spent that time, however, studying the genetics and genomics of the 13-line ground squirrel as an emerging model for genomics and for really extreme physiology. And so she had brought that work with her to Stanford. uh, And it was her biobank and a lot of her work that we in-licensed to start some of the proprietary data sets that we now work with within Fauna. Thank you. I mean, you know, that's a fascinating concept. We can get into the science in a bit, but can you just tell us a little bit about Fauna Bio as a company? Like, how did you decide to found it and, you know, kind of where you are and where you're positioning yourself as a player in this space? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, Linda and, and Katie and I had started working together as postdocs. We realized that there was this huge untapped opportunity in the emerging genomics data sets for hundreds of different species that are the genomes are coming out in higher quality, RNA-seq and proteomics has become exponentially cheaper. So there's much richer data sets available out there for animals that have naturally evolved disease resistance. 
And we were really trying to figure out how can we incorporate these data and how can we make them available and usable for drug discovery and drug development. Um, and we felt like, you know, academia wasn't going to be the way to get there, that we were all frustrated writing grants and papers where the last sentence of the discussion was, and someday someone can use this to make new drugs, right? So we decided that if we weren't going to do it, then nobody else was, because most people didn't realize that these data were out there, these species were adapted in the ways that they are. So we were fortunate enough to connect with Laura Deming while we were still at Stanford, had several chats with her and some advisors for the first batch of age one. And we were invited to join that first batch right in the middle of 2018. So we had just about three weeks to start a company and leave our postdoc and start <laughs> in age one. So it was a very much kind of a three musketeers uh, sort of moment because we really needed all three of our skill sets to make what Fauna does work. When we started at age one, um, we started sequencing tissues out of the biobank and started really building the platform that we use now, which integrates not only RNA-seq data, but also whole genomics, proteomics data, epigenetics data, metabolomics data, so very multidimensional data sets to be able to zero in on new genetic targets, but also be able to distill those already into compounds. So we have modules within our platform where we can take expression signatures we define from the animals that we study, and we can match that to compounds that already exist, and then we can optimize them for a new use. So it's a little bit of a repurposing opportunity. So we, you know, we operate very much in the novel target discovery space. We have a collaboration with a large pharma partner, Nova Nordisk, on obesity. We also have our own internal programs. So we have repurposed compounds and we have novel genetic targets. And we also have, like I said, within the data sets, really unique ways to analyze and integrate all this animal genomics data along with human genetics data in a way that you know can enhance the ability to discover new targets from human genetic data. So that's really the space that we play in. And I think, like I said, our goal going forward is to build on a few additional partnerships, but also push forward some of the assets that we already have. As an aging researcher, I know that comparative sort of genetics or genomics, if you want to call that, has been a key aspect with regards to Drosophila, mice, C. elegans, et cetera. But, you know, these are all modeled systems that, you know, you can subject to experimental paradigms. Maybe you could explain, you know, how you think that these genomes from non-model system animals can inform thinking about human disease. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the point about the sort of more traditional model organisms. I think that's a question that we get fairly often. I think, you know, what we're doing is this pretty much exact opposite of what people have traditionally tried to do with the classic model organisms. And this includes things like mice and rats. And the traditional paradigm has been, let's find an experimentally tractable organism that we can manipulate genetically to try and mimic as closely as possible a human disease, right? And then let's use that to try to understand the human disease, develop new therapies. And then traditionally, unfortunately, that hit rate and the translational rate of those therapies has been pretty low. And that's really one of the key failure points in, in biological development and drug development is that transition back from animal models into humans. And, you know, we think that that pipeline is essentially the, thinking about it in the wrong way, right? I think animal model organisms have a role. And if you need to knock out a gene and know what it does, I think that that's helpful. But in terms of trying to do therapeutics discovery for more complex disorders, they just don't fit the bill. 
So what we do is we look around in nature and say, okay, where are there species that have naturally evolved a resistance to a disease type that we're interested in studying? Say they're resistant to heart damage, they're resistant to neurodegenerative disorders, they can repair wounds without fibrosis, they can reconnect their neurons in, in certain specific ways, they can adapt their metabolism to changing conditions, which is what uh, Nova Nordisk has an interest in. Let's learn from this whole organism adaptation. Let's see what are the genetic pathways that are changing. Let's look at those genes that are highly conserved in humans. And then let's also use human genetic data to back up the findings that we find in these emerging model species. So we do use a significant amount of human genetic data on our platform to help enrich the, the gene sets that we work with. But I think it's really just the idea of let's stop trying to make these animal models mimic a human disease and let's instead look for the reverse. Let's look for situations in nature where there's been a solution to this problem already. And let's learn from that directly in an organism that's, you know, a whole organism paradigm as opposed to trying to just break genes one at a time. So it's really the reverse case that we do with these types of species. What I immediately think of is I, th I think that there are animals like newts that if they lose a limb or something, they can basically regrow one, which would potentially give us insight into regenerative medicine. Is that something that you're familiar with? Yes, that is something I'm familiar with. There's a, a startup that I'm familiar with that's looking at that space as well. There's some several researchers. There's one at Harvard who I know that's working with axolotls for pretty much exactly that purpose. Yep. To ask you a little bit more about your background, how do you think your your work in veterinary medicine has informed your thinking about this sort of biotech proposition? I think vets have an incomparable advantage to human NDs when it comes to thinking about comparative physiology, right? We're taught in school to learn about several different species and think about humans as really just another mammal on that spectrum, right? Humans are not particularly special in that regard, right? They're just another mammal. Sure. And so we think about comparative physiology in a way that allows us to see similarities and differences where MDs and folks who do their PhDs solely in human research are really quite ignorant of the types of disease physiology that we see across the animal world. I know when I was doing my PhD at Stanford, you know, during my interview process, they essentially asked, you know, why do you want to study cancer biology? And I, I would tell them about the patients that I saw that were, you know, rabbits and birds and ferrets that had cancer. And I had a, you know, one of the cancer biology professors there essentially stop me and say, wait, 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 birds get cancer? I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> of course they get cancer. They have cells. And this is a paradigm that I run into with every veterinarian that I know that's worked in sort of a, let's call it a human-centric research institution, where human MDs and human-focused researchers only think about disease in the context of humans and in animals that they've given a disease, like mice they've given cancer to, right? So I was in a dermatology lab. I would talk about veterinary dermatologists and people would be like, whoa, there's veterinary dermatologists. Well, well animals have skin, <laughs> right? So it's just, there's a complete blind spot to the fact that we see all of these same disease syndromes across the animal world and that we can learn a lot because of the genes here are largely highly conserved. So I think veterinarians have a much broader picture and are not sort of as limited in scope in terms of their thinking as human MDs tend to be ultra specialized. And some veterinarians are too. 
but we also have the ability to specialize in a set of species as opposed to a specular body system. And so we're just trained differently. I think where we have deficits is that we don't have as many vets going into more traditional biomedical research. There's not as many DVM PhDs. There's only, I think, you know, maybe several hundred as opposed to the tens of thousands of MD PhDs that there are. So there's not as many vets who want to go into biomedical research, or if they do, they tend to go into laboratory animal medicine. So it's a small cadre of vets that I interact with now that are in this space. And we all, like I said, sort of run into the same problems when we talk to our kind of human medical colleagues. But yeah. So you you had mentioned this notion that certain animals have evolved resistance to particular diseases. I'm sort of curious, say, about neurodegeneration. Like, do you have any sense if there are species that are somehow resistant to that? Yeah. So the one the one species that we spend most of our time working with this is a 13 line ground squirrel. They're a traditional canonical, I guess is a better word, model hibernator. They've been studied quite extensively in terms of how their neurons change connection. So they go through what are called inner bout arousals during their hibernation cycle, where they go from almost freezing back up to 37 degrees Celsius in the matter of just a couple of hours. And so they go through a, a very dramatic physiological change during that time they will be almost completely tau phosphorylated during the kind of bouts, uh, torpor bouts that get, that is cleared at the peak of the inner bout arousals. And this is very similar types of tau to what we see in human Alzheimer's and, and diseases like PSP or parasupranuclear palsy. But they also have been studies in 39 ground squirrels and also several other species that look at the dendritic connections and the degree of connectivity in their brains during the inner bout arousals and that they can reconnect neurons and re kind of reform neural connections that have been broken during these torpor bouts. And that's something that humans, to my knowledge, can't really do. So there are, there are extreme phenotypes like that that have been well studied that histologically that now we're starting to, to study genetically and figure out what's driving those changes in neurons and changes in, in states like tau phosphorylation that can relate to human degenerative diseases. People should know that tau hyperphosphorylation is considered a pathologic feature of Alzheimer's disease, and it leads to these things called neurofibrillary tangles. So these animals actually use tau phosphorylation as a way of adapting to these kind of torpor states. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's a lot of states that are similar to that, where we see changes in species like the 39 ground squirrel that appear to be protective or adaptive to extreme environments that end up causing disease in humans. The differences in these animals, they have ways to reverse them, right? So they can reverse the tau phosphorylation. They can activate gene signatures in the heart that protect them from damage. So a lot of the adaptations that we see, if you kind of let them go unchecked, end up causing disease in people. And these animals have a way to either modulate them or reverse them. Um, And that's really the phenotype that we're quite interested in is how do you modulate these? How do you bring them back to normal? Um, And that's something that these animals can do that we as humans can't. So they, they can actually experience a kind of a loss of synaptic or neuronal connectivity and then essentially repair those as they come back out of their torpor state. That's correct. Yeah. You know, it sort of reminds me of a talk that I saw. Someone was talking about the fact that children 
you know, there, there are these kind of anecdotal cases of children kind of falling through the ice or whatever when they're ice skating and, you know, being submerged for 20 minutes without oxygen and being able to be revived. And, you know, if that were to happen to an adult, the likelihood of them being revived would be much lower. And there, you know, there's something about the children's or young people's plasticity, you know, that allows them to survive these periods of anoxia. Does does that have anything to do with, you know, what you're thinking? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, Linda's been looking at quite closely, she's been kind of phenotyping traits of different species for the Zoonomia project, which is the new generation of the 200 mammals project from the Broad. And part of that is figuring out what animals, including humans, can be considered as species that can go into torpor. And so she was laughing. She was like, you know, there are reports of, you know, you get metabolic decreases of humans that are, you know, either in the cold or resting or these kind of deep meditation states that can go down to 40% metabolic reduction. And 50% is the cutoff that they were using for, for species that could be considered torpidators or species that can experience torpor. So we're not that far off. And I think that speaks to the fact that we're studying very conserved genetic pathways. And if you study a trait like hibernation, it happens across every major group of mammals, including primates. There are lemurs in Madagascar that hibernate very similarly to the ground squirrels here in the U.S. And, you know, they do it using the same genes by and large across those different clades of species, groups of species. And this speaks to the fact that these types of pathways are ancestrally conserved and they're pathways that you and I have that we don't activate on a normal day-to-day basis because we don't have a need to. But we're not looking at a set of genes that say only exist in the ground squirrel. We're looking at genes, that, like I said, you and I have that we're using in perhaps different ways. And really, it's just a matter of saying, can we reactivate certain genetic pathways when we're experiencing disease-like states? that can reverse those diseases. And so, yeah, it actually is very relevant to the fact that this is a, you know, we're looking at disease traits and traits across species that are highly conserved. Um, And I think that's why we've seen such success in the compounds and the genes that we've been looking at. So this kind of is reminiscent of, you know, stuff that comes out of the C. elegans literature where, you know, people were trying to identify aging or or stress resistance genes and they ended up focusing on things involved in diapause and the sorry technical term but you know the formation of these kind of dormant states if you will in it's like suspended animation yeah in the nematode and there's been a lot of you know kind of press around the tardigrade and its ability to go into these highly resistant dormant states. So do you think that hibernation is just kind of a mammalian variation of these states of dormancy? Yeah, there's been, there's a lot of researchers who are working in species like the killifish, right? That's another species that has a form of diapause that people use for longevity research. And that's something that, you know, probably Katie, our CSO would have a better handle on the overlap between the two. 
But, you know, we tend to focus more on the mammalian genetics only because it's easier to look at, again, the conserved orthologs between mammals and, and humans. When you get into some of the lower organisms, that conservation drops off really significantly, and it becomes harder to draw that line to what's going to actually have an effect in humans. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting research going on in some of these lower more model organisms. I think, like I said, Katie and Linda would have a better opinion than I would potentially about how easy it would be to translate findings from those species into, say, humans. So we tend to stick with the mammals. But I think it's, I said, I think there's a lot of interesting research there, but it's not something that we tend to focus on. Sure thing. Can you share with us like an example of how you might identify a gene that was, you know, involved in hibernation, say in a squirrel or a bear or something, and then translate that into a drug target? Yeah, sure. So what we do is we tend to work largely with RNA-seq data. So we use RNA-seq data from tissue-specific time points. So one of the, the data sets that we have um, at Fauna Bio is this biobank that I mentioned earlier, which is somewhere, you know, more than a little more than 3,100 proprietary tissue samples, of which we've sequenced a little over 350 of those to date. One of those tissues was heart. So we looked at heart at very specific time points where we know these animals are taking on damage during the interbout arousals, those periods I mentioned earlier where these animals are rapidly rewarming, and they take on what's known as an ischemia reperfusion type injury, which is very similar to what happens to humans if they have a heart attack and then go in the hospital and have a procedure to restore blood flow. That procedure actually can cause damage to the heart as well. So we look at time points where these animals are experiencing those types of conditions, but we know histologically that they are are not damaged as you would expect them to be. So we look at the RNA expression data. We then define a set of genes that are going up and going down together. So we define these co-regulated gene sets, genes that are changing together. And we can do then uh, one of two different things. We can look at we can put those into large biological networks. We can then look and say, what are the genes that are at the hubs of these networks that seem to be controlling a set of genes that we want to change? And then we can knock that gene out genetically in human cell lines. And we've seen a really strong effect there with four genetic targets we've tested in human cardiomyocytes that have protected them from damage. And we can also take and knock those out in rats that are having a surgical um, model of a heart attack or a coronary ligation surgery. So we've been able to find, again, those same four genetic targets that we found from the 13-line ground squirrel data. If we knock those genes out in rats or knock them down in rats, we see that we have a really strong protective effect from a surgical coronary ligation. So that's really going from all the way from observing a phenotype in species in the wild, essentially, to transiting that directly to both human cells and also to more traditional models of human disease and show that they have a, a very strong protective effect. We can do a similar thing where we can take those expression signatures that we define of these genes that are changing at the same time, and we can match that to compounds that do a similar thing. So we have two ways to do that. That's actually fascinating because, again, you know, for our listeners, you know, stroke or heart attack are obviously uh, traumatic cardiovascular events, but my understanding is, is that a lot of the damage that occurs is from the so-called reperfusion injury where the tissues are temporarily deprived of oxygen, but when the oxygen comes back in, 
that's actually what sort of creates a lot of the damage. So you're suggesting that, you know, these hibernating squirrels, for instance, who are in a low oxygen state, when they kind of come out of that, they're potentially experiencing something like reperfusion injury, but they're they're resistant to it. Did I understand that correctly? That's correct. There's actually been several studies that look at that and several studies that have done surgical coronary ligations or surgical kind of, again, heart attack models in hibernating species and demonstrated directly that they are resistant to cardiac damage at these time points that we're using for these studies. So we look at, like I said, particular disease traits where we have, we already know based on prior experiments that these animals are protected. And that's where we find the best data. So at your company, FaunaBio, do you have particular indications that you're really focused on? I mean, it sounds like cardiovascular is one, but are there others? Yeah, we started with cardiovascular because this was a really pronounced trait that had been observed across several species of hibernators, and there was a lot of rich literature supporting that. And we figured this would be a great way to show that the process works and that our strategy for finding new drug targets, you know, was going to yield good results. Um, Now that we've really established that right now, we're in a phase of expanding into other indications. So we have all told about 20 some odd tissues in the biobank. We're starting, we've already sequenced brain, hypothalamus, liver in conjunction with Novo Nordisk and also intestinal tissue for looking at things like IBD and how the GI tract can regenerate and, and heal itself after long periods of nutrient deprivation. But we also are looking now at tissues like lung and kidney and other organs in the body, muscle tissue, skeletal muscle tissue, and saying, how do these animals repair damage that relate to diseases like chronic kidney disease um, and liver fibrosis and muscle wasting? So there's many other types of traits that we're looking at now, and we're starting to expand our target discovery capabilities and screening hundreds of more targets so that we can make our predictions better and using more robust ML methods to do that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Novo Nordisk? Oh, yeah, sure. So like I said, they have a particular interest in obesity, which is not not a shock to anybody. Um, They are very interested in ways to reset human metabolic rate. And one of the phenotypes that we talked with them about pretty early on was this idea of when humans do lose a large amount of weight, a lot of times then their metabolic rate tends to reset much lower than it started with. It makes those people really much more likely to put back on weight in the future. It makes it really hard to keep the weight off. And so, but it's hard to figure out how to reset metabolic rate. The species that we work with, particularly these 13 line ground squirrels, they increase their metabolism by 235 fold over the matter of one or two hours. And there's just not many other models in the world that can do that repeatedly, you know, week after week for months at a time. And so they were very interested in studying how these animals change their metabolism and also how do the liver and fat cells adapt to that transition. So how do they manage, you know, fatty acid um, metabolism during that metabolic rate change? So, you know, they're interested in finding new drug targets to put into their pipelines. They had been interested in studying hibernation for that for some time, but they didn't have access to the right kinds of samples. And you really do need to understand the models and the the disease, the animal pathology, the animal biology well to be able to make sense out of this types of data. So you really do need some deep domain expertise to be able to make sense of it all. Uh, so those those things all sort of aligned quite nicely with the 
a question that they had about finding new targets. So that's how we ended up connecting through one of our advisors, knew the head of obesity uh, at Novo Nordisk and the Seattle uh, group up there. And so we started working together very late part of 2019, early 2020. And we've now progressed to the point where they're, they are testing now a set of targets that we predicted. They're testing in primary human liver cells, as well as mouse models of obesity and also um, potentially fatty liver disease. So we're just in the phase now where we're talking about extending that agreement into a few other areas as well. I mean, the connection between hibernation and, say, obesity and metabolic syndrome, that seems pretty clear. These animals, like, say, the squirrels or bears, they put on quite a bit of weight before they go into hibernation. Is that correct? Indeed. Yeah, we have some fairly dramatic pictures of <laughs> fat squirrels in some of our presentations, but yes, they do. <laughs> but not to get too technical, but it sort of gets into this question of brown fat versus white fat. And for yep. the listeners, you know, brown fat is this sort of energetic, you know, storage tissue that certain animals use, and it's thought to be less prominent in humans. I mean, do you think about brown fat versus white fat in these studies? Yeah. And it's interesting. These species do tend to maintain stores of brown fat, whereas in humans, that really is only present in, in very young infants, typically, and something that we lose as, as people get older. These animals maintain a storage of brown fat to use for heat production and to help them warm up during these interbout arousals. Now, that's different for the big brown bears don't have quite the same change in body temperature as the 39 ground squirrels. They don't go down to freezing. They just drop a few degrees and stay there. So there are some subtle differences between different species that you need to be aware of. And we do, you know, we have samples of brown and white fat in the biobank that we, you know, are sequencing as well. So you have to understand the differences in physiology. And again, this comes back to the DVM comparative physiology training as well. So Yes, they do use brown fat and white fat. It's just you know, a matter of when and, and how they use them. You're probably familiar with the Dog Aging Project yep. out of the University of Washington. I was wondering if you could just sort of tell us what you think about that and how it may dovetail with what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I spent some time working a little bit with Dan Promislow when I was at Stanford as I was working with some very large veterinary data sets, and they were interested in, in methods to do that as well. So um, I haven't caught up with them in a few years, but I thought it was a fascinating project. I think um, I think dogs are a particularly unique genetic system because of these you know, bottlenecks that have been induced by building out specific breeds. In some cases, it actually can make it easier to, to find disease-associated genes when you have these very clear breed associations. So I would say that dogs are not necessarily a species with disease resistance, which is where we tend to focus, but a species that in many ways can age very similarly to humans. They get the same kind of cognitive disorders. They get some of the same metabolic syndromes. They can get some of the same types of you know, muscle wasting and, and whatnot. But on a shorter time scale, right? They don't live as long. So you can do aging studies in a shorter time scale. Um, so it's you can build those longitudinal data sets more quickly. So I think that there's, I think both sets of data are interesting. You just have to analyze them with the right frame of mind and know what you're looking for. And I think that those types of projects are, are have a ton of value. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of them as well. Sure. I, I know Dan fairly well. And I think one of his, you know, selling points is that, Dogs are good models for humans, 
from an environmental point of view because, you know, they sort of live in houses and, yep. you know, they kind of have a replica of a human <laughs> lifestyle, if you will. So it's not so much the genomics, but it's the the environmental milieu, if you will. But we, what you're doing is really quite a bit different with regards to these more, say, exotic animals that we're not saying they're similar to humans, but they they offer an opportunity for comparative genomics. Can you just talk about your sort of, you know, in, in broad strokes, your your drug discovery pipeline that that's currently active within Phonobio? Yeah. So the current pipeline consists of, like I said, a, a couple of different assets that we're working on currently. One is a naturally cleaved peptide from a gene that came out of our initial screens that we're looking at actually for some subset of retinal diseases that we initially validated in, in the cardiac studies, but then we're looking at the same types of pathways that are altered in, in retinal diseases. We also have a small molecule um, that I mentioned came out of our module called LEO, which is how we match genetic signatures to drugs. So we found an older discontinued small molecule that we've now derived our own novel chemical matter around. And those are analogs that we're now looking at for peripheral vascular disease and some pulmonary diseases in collaboration with some folks at Monash University. And then we have four genetic targets that we validated in cardiac disease. One of those is a little bit more well-known protein. So we're focusing on on that one and, and looking at the biology there to think about, again, broadening out into other indications. And then more interestingly, I think, more, and the more new things that we're working on is moving from looking at acute ischemic injury, uh, but moving into understanding how these animals heal without fibrosis. You know, one of the things we started talking to pharmaceutical companies about our programs, and they were really interested in this trait that we observe where animals can essentially take on damage, but then heal without fibrosis and heal without activating pathways like TGF-beta and laying down collagen. And so we started saying, can we look at time points that relate to healing and repair? And we have now seven genetic targets that we validated in human cardiac fibroblasts that can reduce collagen formation up to 60%. So that's really exciting that we can now move from acute ischemic damage into more chronic diseases like fibrosis, and we're starting to branch out into those types of diseases. Okay, well, that that sounds exciting. I mean, you know, BioAge is very much an aging, you know, kind of disease company. How do you think Fauna Bio fits within the kind of the ecosystem of, quote, aging research? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. One of the things that people have noticed um, in hibernators is that if you look at similarly sized species and ones that hibernate and ones that don't, there's around a 30 to sometimes up to 50% lifespan extension for species that are able to hibernate. And that's even if you account for the periods of time where they've got these massive metabolic rate decreases. And there are species that have been shown to be able to do things like repair telomeres. There are species that have mutations and pathways that are canonically looked at for aging, like the the insulin growth factor pathways and whatnot. So these animals have optimized a lot of the pathways that we look at in terms of the kind of canonical aging pathways that are studied in humans and also other model organisms. And it's interesting that they, by and large, have been really highly adapted to be able to repair their tissues from damage and stress 
which is a lot of what happens to our bodies as they age, oxidative stress and, and other types of damage. And so, you know, that's really what we're learning from these animals is how do you repair damage in a way that reduces disease. So a lot of the diseases that we focus on are considered diseases of aging. They're more metabolic diseases, like say chronic kidney disease and, and, and whatnot. So there's, you know, a few different angles on that question, but I think it's how do animals repair damage? How does that relate to lifespan extension? And how do they keep their tissues healthy even as they age? And I think that's something that we can learn from from hibernators and other species as well. That's pretty exciting. You know, I'd like to give you an opportunity to kind of forecast where this line of thinking is going in the future. I mean, where do you where do you see this in, you know, five or 10 years? What do you hope for? For the field of comparative uh, genomics or for fauna bio particularly? Both. I mean, the field of comparative genomics as a inroad into identifying novel drug targets, basically. I think the main milestones that we're looking for are being able to move move assets and move our compounds toward the clinic, uh, whether that's by ourselves or with partnerships. And I want to be able to show that we can create drugs or help others create drugs that are going to work better than drugs that are found by traditional means or found by using, like I said, the model organisms we started out talking about. And what I would like to be able to show is that we can use evolutionary conservation to make better drugs because they're targeting concerned pathways and that we can really make an impact in disease. And I think that will drive interest and investment into a broader set of organisms than even what we're working with now sort of like what happened with with the aging field, right? There were, you know, five or 10 years ago, this was still very much an emerging field. And now it's sort of coming of age where there are companies like BioAge that have drugs in the clinic and that will only continue to improve. So I I see this field as, as sort of like where aging field was, again, five or 10 years ago. And that hopefully will be more companies in the space um, that are working in other species and other education areas. And we can really show the breadth and what we can do with this type of data. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for being so generous with your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. thanks for that. Thanks for the invite to come on the podcast today. And I enjoyed it. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com or on Twitter at BioAge Podcast. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.